Good morning. Get to be in God's Word today. We get to finish another letter of the Bible since I started in July of 2017. I believe this is the seventh letter we are going to finish since I got here. So with that, only 59 more, all right? So yeah, get excited. Uh, so First John, we've been spending time in this letter since the beginning of September, and I'm going to miss it, but I am going to remember fondly how this letter has affected me in my own personal walk. Today we cover the last few verses of chapter 5, which Mike, with the baritone voice, just read, and we will conclude this letter with a warning that while it honestly sounds a little weird to hear it as the last thing communicated, I think it's actually very wise for the Ephesians to hear this and for us today to hear this. So let's begin in verse 13. My title is concluding 1 John. I was not creative with this <laughs> title at all. <laughs> 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. I love that John is writing this, because while often what is written by John is so that we may know who gives eternal life, and this letter constantly reinforces this, as Dan quoted the idea that the redundancy often is to tell us something. To, it was to, John was pointing out to make us confident that if we know Jesus, we may know that we already have eternal life. This is not, hopefully we'll make it to heaven one day if we're good, like most movies I watch. But this is to live in the knowledge of knowing you are secure in Jesus Christ. And eternal life has already been given to you. Security is something that I think cultish religions do a good job of attempting to get you to behave by saying you can lose what was supposed to be freely given. I think the idea of losing your salvation spits in the face of the gift giver who freely gave knowing everything about you, past, present, and future. That is a piece of why grace Getting what you do not deserve is so amazing because it is not conditional or earned. So family, believers, those who identify with Christ's finished work, come to him. Come to him in your daily life, confident in whose you are. So look at how John continues. Verse 14. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, this usually takes us right to the function of prayer. Okay, I read that, and prayer. But let's not forget who the point of this verse is. Our confidence is not based on how good we are or how well we've fled from sin in any given moment. No, this confidence is wrapped up in who we, by faith, believe God to be. So know, children of God, that if you are his and he is yours because of faith in Jesus Christ, we come to him in confidence in prayer. Not in a name it and claim it kind of posture, but in an understanding that asking God for what is in his will is something he wants us to do, and there is no question if he hears the prayers of his people while we pray in his will. But can we just acknowledge that the God who created the heavens and the earth has always been and is eternally good. He knows us. He knows what we need, and he hears our prayers based on his will. 
Like, that's kind of mind-boggling if you really think about it. If God is real, if when you go to pray to him, he hears you and he knows you, if that is true, what a big deal. Because we live in a selfish culture. Can we be real about this? We live in a culture that wants to make things about us. And we want to be connected to important people. And yet the God of the universe hears our prayers We didn't have to slide into his DMs. We didn't need to gather attention by posting a video that went viral. We have a God who hears us and cares for us and walks alongside us. And you and me, in the big scheme of things, at least I'm not that important in this world. And I've kind of tried to stop tooting my own horn and seeking attention like I once did. But then yet, God doesn't come to me and say, well... You don't have the social media presence you once have, so now I don't really think you're worth my time. No, he still loves me. And God hears me as you and I pray according to his will, with his glory in mind. So where do we find his will? Well, because apparently it's pretty important to look for his will, it seems. And for some of us, we might be a little bit numb to this reality. When I said, so where do we find his will? But the will of God is revealed in the Word of God, written by the Spirit of God. So yeah, God's will, found in God's Word. And if this is true, why do we assume His will apart from His Word? I've heard people share thoughts about God that I know aren't found in His Word, and honestly, they contradict God's Word blatantly. But because so many are ignorant to what He says, we listen to the voice of ignorance. My favorite is, God will never give you anything you can't handle. Has anyone ever heard this? Has anyone ever said this? Be honest. Yeah. The scripture narrative definitely points out how perilous mankind is without God. Throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament, imagine saying to Jesus in the garden how God won't give him anything he can't handle while he's sweating blood and headed towards certain death. Listen, God will never give you anything he can't handle. But we pray in accordance with his will to get in line with his will. And we find his will in his word. Because God decided to not make us guess about what he wants. Rather, he gave us careful instruction to help us want more of him and his will and his glory. So what does he do with these prayers of his people in accordance with his will? Next verse. Here's what it says. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. (laughs) This can be interpreted incorrectly, easily. And when praying in accordance with God's will, we are not trying really hard to persuade him away from his own will because that's ridiculous. We can't tempt God. But you are getting in line with his will, which brings him glory as you pray along the lines of what he says his will is. If you know it or not, you are receiving his will for your life. Sometimes that means we pray and he simply says yes. Sometimes we pray and he says no in accordance with his will. And sometimes I contend, and usually is what I've experienced, is he says not yet as we bring our petitions to him, because he, unlike us, knows exactly how to produce the fruit of the Spirit in his people. 
And a piece of that is patience. And his timing, while not our timing, is perfect and in accordance with his will. I was thinking about how often I personally pray apart from his will. And I'm supposed to know God's word. Because I'm not thinking about him at all. I am simply thinking about myself. Does anyone else pray like this? Please be honest. Thank you. This side of the room, I'm with you. And when I pray this way, I'm not remembering or realizing who I am praying to or how fortunate I am to have the attention of the God of the universe. But praying according to his will also means that there are things that are off the table. There are things that I should not be praying for simply because in the vastness and depth of God and his grace, there are simply things that are not available to me as his child. Which if we want to get simple, things that are not included in his will. So praying for those things is like asking for something that is not available, nor should it be. So to illustrate this, I want to show you a quick clip. Welcome to Baston Robbins. Would you like to try our mango fruit blast? Uh, no thanks. Um, I will have, I'll have a burger, please. Oh, we don't, we don't make that. Pretzel, hot pretzel, like mustard, we have mustard dip. It's ice cream, Baston Robbins. I'll just do like whatever's hot and fresh. Dude. Can I see you in the back, Chief? Pronto. Sure thing, Dale. Darby, could you just uh, take care of this idiot? Thanks. Now, that was from the, the wonderful art film Ant Man. And while that is a funny clip of someone being completely oblivious to what he, where he is ordering food, it's not lost on me that when we don't take into account God's word, or even acknowledge God's will that is revealed in God's word, we actually sound like that dork trying to get a burger at Baskin Robbins. No matter how much you want something, if it's apart from God's will, he ain't giving it to you. And so if you then attain it, and yet you think it's in God's will, and it's not in God's will, and you yet attain it because you have tried hard to attain something, don't give credit to the God of the Bible because you didn't actually ask him. So you want to know God's will? You want to know how to pray where God will hear you and perhaps even answer your prayer in the affirmative? Open his word and seek his will. Okay, that was a lot of saying the same thing to point out that we got to be in his word. So pray, church. Pray more than you have been. Pray without ceasing. Ceasing. Ask for things. Exalt his character in prayer. Confess your inabilities and transgressions in prayers. It's not like he's surprised by them. But don't assume that getting what you want is in line with God's will for your life because he knows you better than you do. He knows more than we know. He's outside of time, and he wants you to know him, to grow in him, and to be a testimony of his grace as you mature into the likeness of his son. And that is often accomplished in prayer and patience and searching for his will and his word. This past week, I had some really high highs. Uh, started off with really great Bible study with some friends and then an amazing elder meeting and time with the staff. And I had some pretty low lows. But I will tell you this, I've been in God's word a lot, and when I am, I've been pumped about who God is and what he does and the fact that he knows me. So don't read even this passage that we're reading today. Don't just have us read it to you. 
When you're done here, read it again because it'll mean more to you as we've walked through the sermon. The words will actually stick out to you in a way. But I know for me on Monday morning when I start working generally on the next sermon, I put away the sermon I just did on Sunday and I go, oh, I'm not even going to be in that again. But there's something beautiful about the passage that we've been studying. There's something beautiful about this letter that we've been studying that if you go back to it, you'll find more and more things that you didn't understand at first because honestly, the way John teaches some of this, it's, it's, if you read it literally, it doesn't make that much sense. Personally, the more I am in the word, the more the word is in me. And searching for God's will and learning more about God's son when in the right frame of mind, with Christ being the central point, I can tell the difference of God doing a work in me. And I just want to advise anyone who's interested in growing in their passion for God and others, spend time in his word, read it on your own. So John, pointing to our confidence in God and our relationship with him as we pray in accordance with his will, then uses an example of praying in and outside of God's will. Now, let me say that again. He's going to use an example. So here's what he says in verse 16. And this verse literally makes no sense if you're not looking at the context. Here's what it says. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, that's my first question mark, what? You should pray and God will give them life. Okay, I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death, question mark. There is a sin that leads to death. Yes, I know. I am not saying that you should pray about that. What? So this is a really confusing verse, and it's at the end of 1 John. Imagine reading this letter. You're in Ephesus. Someone gets up. They start to read it to you, and then they say that, and you're like, what? What? Now, Mike and I spent some time on this. I wrestled with it. I spent way too much time on the negative portion of this verse when that was not the point of the verse. So I'm only going to give you a paragraph on the negative part and try to point to the point of the verse. But one of the things Mike pointed out to me was contextually, the Ephesians knew exactly what John was talking about. But it doesn't read well to us here in Santa Clara in 2024. So without any study or context being included, I think what we just read sounds like this. I'm supposed to pray for believers who do little sins. But if they do big sins, they're on their own and don't pray for those bad baddies. That's what that sounds like. Do you see the assumption? Now, with the context in mind of John saying that we should pray with God's will in mind and we can come in confidence and assurance that he hears us, when we pray with his will in mind, Then he gives an example of when we pray for a brother or sister, another believer, we know is committing a sin that doesn't lead to death. I'll get to that. We can pray for them and God will give them life. Here's what I think John is pointing out. It's that we should be quick to go to God about someone that we perhaps think we see doing something that is not in line with what they claim they believe. Rather, okay, here's the big rather. This is the Dan rather. Are you ready? Rather than going to another individual and perhaps spreading gossip. I think that's the point and the emphasis of this verse. Rather, which I totally did, spend most of your time on the thing that says not to pray for. And here is where interpretation and hermeneutics 
context determining meaning and scripture interpreting scripture is utilized. I think John is using language that we are familiar with, but the meaning is twofold. I'm going to ask an elementary question that I want you to hold on to the answer for just a moment. Here's the question, because I don't think we're thinking about it when it comes to this passage. What absolves us as Christians from our sins? Hold on to the answer. I'm going to ask for it in a second. Hold on to it. Can we make up our sins by being a really good person for a time period? No. Good answer. If you said yes, you're not listening. And the scriptures, unfortunately, are hardening your heart. Can you make up your sins by religious activity? No. Thanks, Malik. No. The only thing that pays for our sins is a life being given over. And if you're like the average person, you will live your life in ignorance. You might even be religious or uh, have some spiritual activity. But when you breathe your last breath, you will pay for your sin with your own life. And that is death. But according to what God says, we have the opportunity to receive grace which is Jesus trading his life for ours by believing that he is the son of God, by believing that he is the Christ. And that means that our sins, many or not, are paid for by Jesus' perfect life, sacrifice on behalf of sinners like me and sinners like you. So when this truth, the gospel, the good news, this person, Jesus, this salvation by grace is received. Our sins no longer have the power to lead us to death eternally without God, and that is good news. And so John tips his hand when he says, a brother or sister, a child of God, a sibling in the faith based on grace through faith in Christ. When you see a brother or sister, a redeemed recipient of grace, and they are sinning, because they do, and I do, and you do, you do, intentionally or not, when we sin, we should pray for that person. And God in his grace and his will will give them life, give them a way out of the sin. He will help them repent and turn from it, and it won't continue to be a stumbling block for their spiritual growth. This is what happens in the believers, the children of God, and why John says to pray for them rather than talk about them to other people. But a sin that leads to death? I don't think he means as a Christian, we then can outsin the cross and God goes, nope, that's enough, I'm done. I don't think we can outsin God's grace. I think what John means is that when we continue to sin, a sin that's intentional, and, and hear me, this hurt me as, as I wrote this. As we continue to sin, a sin that is intentional, one that is continually breaking our communion with God and our intimacy with him, it's probably, if we're unwilling to give it up, it's probably because we have never really had communion with God or understand intimacy with him. Because rather than being in Christ, we're still found in our sins. John is saying, pray for those that identify as Christians. If you see them commit a sin, God will, in his grace, provide life and life change that will change them. 
Not because of your prayers, but alongside of them, because this is his will. But then he concludes that he isn't talking about the sin that leads to death. So what is he possibly talking about? Next verse. Verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay. Sin. Missing the perfect mark of God's law. We all do it, but again, there is sin that doesn't lead to death. Why? Now I need you to give me that answer. What is the Bible study answer to why our sin does not lead us to death, Christians? Jesus! That's how we end our service meeting. It's because of Jesus. It's because we're found in him. It's not he saved us and now we have to make up for it. It's, nope, we find our identity in him, and we make mistakes, and we screw up, and we are representatives, but we're kind of bad at it, and yet God still uses us. Verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. What? The one, capital O, just want you to notice that in the NIV, the one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. I wish this passage was easier. It's like ending Paul's letters at the end. It's like, hey, could you tell this one guy to get my cloak? That'd be awesome. But here's John. So now we're told that anyone in Christ who believes in Jesus and is a child of God, born again through the Spirit, he or she, they do not continue to sin. Well, I'm out. Might as well just pack it up. Because no matter how hard I try, church, I continue to sin. So if I read this in a very shallow way, without context in mind, this text is saying I'm not a Christian because I continue to sin. But, church, friends, fellow believers, don't read the Bible through a shallow lens without context in the rest of Scripture in mind. He doesn't mean that sins are absent he means that those sins no longer bring death upon you like they did prior to knowing Jesus. Why? Because the one, capital O, born of God, and in this case, he doesn't mean you or I, but Jesus, the one conceived of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin, he keeps them safe. Safe from what? What do we get to be safe from? What our sin has afforded us. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. Worship team? No, I'm just kidding. Jesus paid it all. Jesus didn't pay some of it. Jesus didn't just pay for the sin that we committed up until the time we accepted Jesus. No, he keeps us safe from death for eternity because we are in him and he paid it all. Past, present, and future. That is the power of grace. It's not just current, it's for all time, like the TVA. And so because of an eternal savior, Jesus makes it so the evil one cannot harm us eternally because we are his. Look at how Jesus comforts his disciples before his eventual arrest and crucifixion in John, not 1 John, John 14. Jesus says to his disciples before he gets arrested, do not let your hearts be troubled. Christians, own this for a second. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house 
has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, and you also may be where I am. You know to the place where I am. you know the way to the place where I am going. This kind of language that Jesus shares with his disciples, those who were following him, in which, if you're a believer in Jesus, you also identify as a follower of Jesus, this language from Jesus is so loving. It is so caring. It is so patient to remind them and us that we are his. And he prepares an eternity for us that we didn't earn, but an eternity with him that he has already secured for us. Verse 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Oh, John, throughout this entire letter, John is affirming believers and encouraging them in the confidence and the assurance they can have in their sonship, in their daughtership, because they believe unto the Lord Jesus Christ. So knowing that you are a child of God and that your identity is and your defense is in Jesus. John still makes known that everything of this world, shrouded in sin, is under the control of the evil one. But as the bumper sticker often says, we are not of this world. So only through faith in the promise that we are God's children can we overcome a world that is overran by sin. John has written an entire letter. We're almost done unpacking and convincing the believer in Ephesus that their faith in the Son of God, Jesus, is what brings them eternal life. And similar to this author's, author John's admission in the letter known as John's Gospel, he seems to have a similar reason for writing. Here's what he says. John 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He leaves no room for you trying to be a good person. He points it all to believing in the Son of God. And John has a similar message towards the end of 1 John. Here's what he says in verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus has come. He has come to give us understanding of the one true God. Do you want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus, church. And we are in the true God by believing and effectively being in the Son, Jesus. And so like John's gospel letter, this letter has an explanation of what specific theme he wants to convey across the entire letter. Redundantly, yes, that we are gods. Not like a Mormon, not like Thor or Loki or anything else, make believe, but instead possessive pro pronoun. We are God's children if we believe in the Son and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The triune God is the true God and we have true eternal life and relationship with him. Now this letter 
It's one of my favorite letters I've read and we've studied as a church now. And it's going to come to a conclusion in just a moment. And I definitely say that much of this letter has been very positive. John has been reassuring, reminding and encouraging those who have called on the name of Jesus that they are children of God. Their identity is placed in the person and work of Jesus. Their salvation is secure in Jesus. Their lives are gradually being transformed into the likeness of who? Jesus. And they believe and obey God at his word. Sure, there are moments in this letter where John has to warn against false teaching and the spirit of the Antichrist, if you remember, which is to lower Jesus' supremacy. But the majority of this letter is encouraging these believers in their adoption into the kingdom of God and how that should and does affect their everyday lives here on earth. So after all of this encouragement, all of this emphasis upon our eternal life, here is how John ends the letter. Oh, John. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. It would have been a lot easier to be like, Seacrest out, or anything else other than, oh yeah, children, keep yourselves from idols. So why does he end this way? I don't really have a good reason. He doesn't end with a farewell. He just ends with, hey, don't do this. Keep yourselves from idols. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that he ended this way because he wanted it to be memorable. What does it mean to be kept from idols? I believe what John is getting at is to not trust, obey, follow, or worship an idol. This whole letter has been about Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ. All of it has been to encourage and strengthen the believer in their sonship because it's not about what we do, it's about what he's done. And John so simply puts it, if you are in Jesus, you do not need an idol. Do not keep them, do not heed them, do not accept them, do not bow down to them. Why? Because you got Jesus. I hate talking about idols because, like Martin Luther said, our hearts are idol factories. Or Calvin, either one, one of them said it. But idolatry is subtle and it's powerful. Idolatry is a way that so many people refuse Jesus while thinking they trust Jesus because they have replaced him with some created thing. Idols aren't necessarily bad things, as we would assume, like drugs or some type of substance. Idols can be great things like our children or our spouses or our self-esteem or our friends or our jobs or something else that simply becomes far too important in our lives. Tim Keller in Counterfeit Gods put it this way, an idol is something we cannot live with. We must have it. Therefore, it drives us to break the rules we once honored to harm others, even ourselves, in order to get it. I've been um, frustrated with this quote all week. Your turn. So while it can be a lot of things, that are subtle and don't feel at all like what we think an idol would be. It's not a statue that we're, we're sacrificing our children to. It's important that we check ourselves. 
and look at our priorities and not just have a more moderate lifestyle, but determine if something other than Christ has become our central motivation. Christ, not Christianity, not our church, not how we serve or our ministries or our religion, but Christ, is he central? I once heard a pastor say this, don't make Jesus first, because when you make him first, you just check him off a list and move on to other things that have become the main motivation for things. Don't make him first, make him central. And when we make him central, if we put him at the center of our lives, every decision, every purpose comes out of him and our affection for him. And this is the antidote, this is the cure, this is the remedy to idolatry to make the person and work of Jesus our purpose and our prize. So let me break this down from personal experience. Just because we serve God in our church, in some parachurch ministry or in some other way, it is good to serve God, to serve him out of conviction of his word, to put into practice what we believe God means when he tells us to obey his commands, to love others, to, do, to outdo one another in honor. All of this is good stuff, but the shadow to that or the backside of water, if you will, is very possibly an idol. We can make service to God the point. We can justify ourselves by what we do for God rather than what Jesus has already done. This is one of the simplest ways to keep idols. We hide them under the mask of, but we're serving God. And yet at some point, our service in and of itself can become our God. Not the service necessarily, but to see the service as something that earns us God's love. Oswald Chambers, he wrote uh, Utmost uh, for His Highest. He says this in a quote, Beware of any work for God that causes or allows you to avoid concentrating on him. A great number of Christian workers worship their work. The only concern of a Christian worker should be their concentration on God. A worker who lacks the serious controlling emphasis of concentration on God is apt to become overly burdened by his work. He is a slave to his own limits, having no freedom of his body, mind, or spirit. Consequently, he becomes burned out and defeated. There is no freedom and no delight in life at all. His nerves and mind and heart are so overwhelmed that God's blessing cannot rest upon him. I take this to mean that when burnout arrives, our work has not been for the Lord like perhaps we originally expected. But instead, we've been doing a lot of work possibly to justify ourselves or to see ourselves as more holy based on our effort. And so when burnout arrives, perhaps it's God's blessing, church, of letting us know that our concentration on God has actually not been the purpose of our efforts anymore. For many people, God isn't even involved. And we identify more with our work in the world than we do with the salvation offered to us in Jesus. But this example isn't just for the person who gets paid in ministry. I've seen many people get serious about serving Jesus only to flame out because their motivation in the first place had nothing to do with the Lord. And let me say this honestly. I've been following Jesus since June 13th, 2001, and pretty quickly into my own personal commitment to Christ, I jumped into serving. 
I got involved in youth ministry and young adult ministry. Over time, I began to speak and share my testimony. After many years, my serving of Christ became more and more upfront and responsible, and I became more of an example. If I knew it or not, I was a representative of Jesus. But my character wasn't keeping up with my opportunity. And I would try really hard to be good. Good at my craft, if you will, rather than caring about how I lived my life and represented Christ. And while I felt like I have grown, or I had grown, honestly, the amount of attention I was receiving was great for my ego and terrible for the growing character that God was developing in me. Now, here's the thing. It's easier for me to talk about this now. In fact, I enjoy warning against this idolatry of feeling I was more spiritual because I was influential. And so over time, God showed me personally where my own idolatry was in what I could do for Jesus. I've said it before, I would make much of Jesus and others would make much of me, and I liked it. It wasn't until about a year before the pandemic, we call those the good old days, remember that? Where God made it clear to me that my marriage, my children, and my home life was far more important to the kingdom of God than what I thought I could do for God. I was so enamored with trying to grow a church that if I knew it or not, was so far from concentrating on God because instead I was concentrating on me. But over time, the gospel just became more and more clear. And in that clarity, God exposed more and more of who I was and what I was idolizing rather than worshiping the Lord who I thought I was serving. I share this, church, to every single one of you. If you're in ministry, not in ministry, if you serve God, if you believe in God, if you don't believe in God, I share this because idolatry is subtle. And sometimes it totally looks good and people affirm it in you. And as John concludes this letter of 1 John, the echo of this warning should be one that we hear and do not ignore. Church, I hope that this letter we have studied since the beginning of September, that you understand that if you believe in the true God through the Son of God, that you believe Jesus is the Christ, then you grasp and understand that there is assurance that you have in him no matter what. And because of this obedience, trusting God at his word, you get to love other believers as children of God and to grow in your understanding of the Son and spiritual growth does take place in the believer whose motivation is God's glory and concentrates on making Jesus central. Worship team, would you come up here and meet me? So here's my ask of you, church. After reading this passage, that generally when, when writers would end letters, it was way easier than this. Here is my ask of you. Pray for one another. Pray for my ego. Pray for the things that you think might be stumbling blocks for other believers. You don't have to go to them and be like, I see 14 idols. Let's check them off. No. Go to God. Don't go to others. Pray. Pray for other believers because they've been given the same spirit and grace that you've been given. May we walk in God's commands through love for him and for love through others. Let's pray before we worship in song. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this letter written by the Holy Spirit through John. 
And I thank you that it is true. And I thank you how it has shown me consistently how in need of grace I am. God, would we be a people that love you? Would we be a people that love other believers? Would we be a people that are a light to a world that is in darkness? May the Son of God be who we talk about. May the Son of God and his work on the cross and victorious resurrection from the dead be the thing that we focus on to remind us of our assurance in Christ. Lord, by your grace, would you keep us from idols and when we come near them, would there be other believers who love us enough to talk with us, but most importantly, to first pray to you. Pray this in Jesus' name.